years ago when I was in Southern California, I would kind of eavesdrop on this mother's group that would meet on a deck next to my house and pray for one another's children. It was, uh, I was at staff housing at Camp Maranatha at the time, and our neighbor uh, was the director of the campground, and uh, his wife would, had been meeting for over 10 years with a group of other mothers, and they, were, they would meet once a week and pray for one another's children. And I was very impressed with their prayers that they were praying for, for each other's kids. Um, and of course, what they were praying were scriptures, uh, scriptures that they had pulled right out of the Bible and reworded as prayers for one another's children. I was just very impressed by the depth of the prayers, uh, the fact that they didn't sound anything like the kind of prayers that I would pray for my own kids. And, uh, and I was really struck by it, and I asked uh, my neighbor, her name was Paula, if I could have a copy of the sorts of prayers that they would pray, and she was happy to give me one. And I did memorize a couple of those prayers, and still to this day, I often uh, draw on them and pray for my kids. Uh, when I feel um, the, called upon to pray for them, I sometimes draw upon those, uh, those scriptures. Uh, praying scripture is not the only way to pray, but it is definitely something I feel that a Christian should keep in his or her prayer arsenal. And I encourage you even to memorize a few select scriptures to pray over others, not just your children, but your spouse, your neighbors, your boss at work, uh, brothers and sisters in, within your church family. Um, if you would like uh, some examples of scriptural prayers to pray over other people, I'd be happy to give you, uh, to email you a, a copy of some of those uh, prayers that I like to use. And um, it's been a really helpful thing to me in my prayer life. And uh, so you could do that by emailing me at joshbtate at gmail.com, joshbtate at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to send you some prayers uh, from Scripture that you can be praying over others. I've shared with you in the past that during this time of isolation and separation from one another that I've really been studying Paul's prison prayers and uh, those are found in the books of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. The other prison epistle that he writes is the book of Philemon. Um, but mostly I've been concentrating on Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And it's really striking to me that uh, those books, those prayers, are written in a context somewhat similar to the one <laughs> that we're in right now, in that uh, Paul was under house arrest. He was isolated and separated, cut off from... Uh, his brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, it's been very instructive to me how he prayed for those from whom he was separated, and it's been very helpful to me as just a pastor and a brother in Christ to know how to be praying for you. It's really shaped how I've been praying for you even this past week. Um, this, so this morning, we're going to teach on Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. If you want to open your Bibles and get there, uh, we're going to be referring to that prayer that Paul writes in the opening chapter of Ephesians throughout the rest of our time together. Uh, but before we launch in and begin enjoying this prayer together, I just want to say this. Whenever I preach on the topic of prayer, I, I have the same concern, which is that I might give the false impression that prayer is somehow a complicated thing, or that there are lots of rules and formulas that have to be followed to make our prayers truly powerful. <laughs> prayer is not like that. Prayer is as simple as conversation. And as we study these prayers together, my hope is that it will, it will loosen our tongue in God's presence. 
and not make us more fearful or intimidated by the prospect of prayer. I think some of us do not have a very active prayer life, or it's not as active as we would like it to be. And the last thing I want to do in this time of teaching on prayer, which we're going to be doing over the next several Sundays, we're going to spend a a number of Sundays on Paul's prison prayers. Uh, The last thing I want that to do is to make it more intimidating for you to pray, as though you have to get things just right uh, if you're going to be talking to God. And that's not, I don't think that's at all what we should come away with. In Hebrews 4.16, God encourages us to draw before the throne of grace with confidence, not trepidation, or in a way that's unsure of our welcome. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And doesn't the Lord's Prayer, in which he gave us an example of how to pray, found in the Sermon on the Mount, it begins with the words, Our Father. And so I would just encourage you with those scriptures in mind to allow yourself to be a child in the presence of God when you pray. Um, My own kids, uh, I think especially of Charlie, my youngest, he's only five years old, Um, but when he comes and talks to me, I don't require him to get everything just right for me to give him my time or my ear. Uh, Very often he he says things the wrong way, or he's got a, a, the wrong idea, but I don't just shut him down and say, come back to me when you got your stuff together. <laughs> and, I, and I don't think God does that with us either. So we don't need, we should be like a child at the knee of their father, a little child. And so we shouldn't worry about getting the words just right, as though God is a prickly, easily offended person who will ignore you if you don't approach him in the right way. In fact, in in Romans 8.26, God says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And what's most interesting and encouraging to me about that verse is that Paul, our human teacher on the topic of prayer for the next several weeks, includes himself in that statement when he writes that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And Paul goes on to say that there are times when we do not know what we ought to be praying for. He includes himself in that statement, but then encourages us to pray anyway and with a light heart because even in those instances, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf to communicate with groanings, two thing, things too deep for us to shape in human words. I was thinking about this earlier this week. It says in Isaiah 55, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways, and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. So because that's true, that he's so much higher than us, when you talk to your God in prayer, it's really important to allow yourself to be a child in his presence. Prayer is not designed to persuade or move God so much as it is meant to move us into agreement with his will. And the best way I have found from in my prayers to move me into agreement with his will is at times to pray his very words back to him. Those words that he gives us in the Bible as examples of prayer are a reflection of his thoughts and his ways that are higher above us than the heavens are above the earth. And when I pray God's words back to him, I find myself wonderfully helped. 
I I find my heart moved into agreement with his will. And the prayer in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, is one of those portions of scriptures that I could easily spend a number of Sundays on. In nine short verses, it contains months of sermons. It's a bit like, have you ever gotten those little uh, plastic capsules that you throw in the bathtub with a kid at bath time, and the, the covering around the capsule dissolves, and inside the foam toy begins to expand in the water, and it grows far bigger than the capsule that you threw into the bathtub. I, this prayer is exactly like that where it's just a few short verses, but it contains a whole world of ideas, and it keeps growing in our minds. We could easily take a long um, sermon series on just this prayer. But this morning, we're going to take a 30,000-foot view of this prayer. We're going to kind of do the flyover and see some of the highlights that it contains. And it begins with verses 15 and 16. It reads like this. For this reason, because I have heard your, of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Uh, the first thing I want us to see about, uh, these, about what's contained in these verses is this. This prayer that Paul offers is for others. Praying for yourself is not wrong. In fact, Paul will conclude his letter to the Ephesians by asking them to pray for him. But I have begun, as I have begun hunting Paul's prison prayers and studying them, I am struck by how the vast majority of his prayers are for other people. Even as I look, take inventory of my own prayer life, and I see that most of my prayers are for me. (laughs) And that's been convicting. Uh, for me to see is that Paul, in his time of isolation, is not uh, self-obsessed. His thoughts and his heart are, and his prayers uh, are focused on others. The other thing I want us to see here is that when it says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, the, the one flows and issues from the other. Uh, just like flame in a lantern leaps from a reservoir of kerosene. Love, love for all the saints, issues forth from faith in Jesus. Love is like the visible flame of a Christian's invisible faith. And so Paul here is making an observation. He's saying, I have heard of your faith and I've seen the proof of it in the way that you are living and relating to one another. And just as I was thinking about that earlier this week, and I've been making this observation for weeks now, uh, but State Road, you've been a wonderful blessing to me just throughout the week as I've been calling to catch up with people. uh, I have been hearing about your faith And I've been seeing in many wonderful, meaningful ways how you're demonstrating that faith in in expressions of love to one another. And uh, he also says here, do not cease. He says he hasn't ceased in praying for uh, his brothers and sisters in the church in Ephesus. So he's persevering in prayer. This isn't a one-off event. He has been praying for these people in a a, detail. a determined, focused way over a span of time. And one word here I just need to give you as a quick caution. Um, 
and something that's very hard for me to do. Uh, I will constantly be in contact with people and they'll tell me stuff that's going on and I, I, I will say, I'll, I'll pray for you. And then instantly I feel like, oh man, I've already got a long list of people that I'm struggling to keep up in my prayer commitments toward. And if you're not somebody who has a, a well-established discipline of prayer in your, in your walk, uh, I would encourage you to, to focus in a very limited way on, on a few people for whom God has particularly burdened you. I think when we set out to pray for everybody in every need, we end up praying for no one. And as we grow in our ability to pray, as we uh, flex those muscles and develop them, then we can begin adding more and more people and burdens and concerns. Um, but it is wise, I think, uh, if you're going to practice what Paul says he's doing here, that he has not ceased to pray for them, um, to keep that to be committed to those few people for whom God has truly burdened you. And, um, and be open, of course, to the Lord assigning you somebody else to be praying for and adding to as you go. Um, but I, I, I just think that, you know, it, we need to approach this prayer thing with some um, intentionality and even strategy. Uh, one of the great benefits that I have is my computer, and I have a, an app on my computer that when I fire it up, it tells me what my to-do list is for the day. And so when I've committed to praying for somebody, I might even just enter their name into that app and it will tell me the next day to pray for them. And so I do. Um, but just, yeah, it, keep that in mind that you want to be very intentional and even selective about who and what you commit to pray for. The other thing he says here is that he gives thanks to God for them. And he remembers them in his prayers. And giving thanks is a, is a reflecting back on things that have happened in the past. And that remembering them in their prayers is a looking forward to the future. And I, this, again, just this past week in my times of prayer for you, State Road, and for many of you by name, uh, I did spend time just thanking God for you, for what I had seen, for what I had heard, for my, my shared uh, memories with you. And um, my, my, my remembering you in prayers was a forward-looking sort of a prayer where I would ask God for certain things in your life. And that's where we come to the next part of this verse. Verses 17 uh, through the first part of verse 18, it says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, four words jump off the page in this verse and a half. And the words have different meanings, but in, in some ways are interrelated. Those four words are wisdom, revelation, knowledge, and enlightened. Paul also mentions the Spirit as the one who gives a believer the capacity to lay hold of these things. So the first thing that Paul asks from God for his brothers and sisters was not for something, nor that they would see themselves or their circumstances differently, but that they would be granted by the Spirit a bigger vision of God. And that is really what is most needed. This is the great spiritual battle. And this is fought in quiet moments, often in solitude, when we turn off the TV, stop scrolling the internet, and we get into God's word and pray. 
all alone, just us, you and God. Paul is praying that something supernatural would flourish in the hearts of the church in Ephesus, a kind of seeing that is different from seeing with our natural eyes. He says that the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. And we should pray for one another in the same way. We should pray for a divine enabling of spiritual sight and spiritual knowledge because without this, we are blind to the spiritual realities surrounding what we can see with our natural eyes. And if we only look on the world with our natural eyes and are not given the wisdom and the ability to see it from God's perspective, it will lead us to a disastrous place in our hearts and in our minds. A couple of Sundays ago, I shared with you 1 Chronicles 12.32, where it says, Of Issachar, this is talking about the men who came and joined David at Ziklag before he became king. It said, From the tribe of Issachar there came men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And I've shared with you that I hope the same may be said of us here at State Road when this whole pandemic is over and in the period of time following it. But how did the men of Issachar gain understanding of the times and knowledge of what to do? I would argue it had to have been spiritually discerned. God gave it to them. And we should be praying that we should be praying that for one another as the spirit brings us to one another's minds. We must see with the eyes of our heart the greatness and glory of our future with God. This is always true, but it's especially so in a difficult, trying season like the one that we're all in right now. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, here are a few verses to consider as we think along these lines. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Romans 8, 24, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he can already see? In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, Now we see but a dim reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. In 2 Corinthians 4, 18, it says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And Hebrews 11:1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of what we hope for and the certainty of what we do not see. I think that one of the great spiritual perils in the midst of this current season is that what is flooding our senses, our eyes, our ears, is the constant drone of network news, the press conferences, the clutter of Facebook links and opinions. Or because that's so heavy with gloom and repetitious, repetition and it's just unbearable to live under the weight of that constantly, some are just kind of seeking relief by escaping into empty and inane entertainment. And neither of these approaches, doing a deep dive into the doom and gloom and the prognostications, the ominous possibilities, or escaping into inane, empty entertainment, is particularly helpful spiritually. There is a more excellent way. John Owen once wrote of God, he irradiates the mind with a spiritual light 
whereby it is enabled to discern the glory of spiritual things. This miracle, this opening of the eyes of our heart, is absolutely decisive in everything else that happens in the Christian life because by it we perceive the greatness and glory of our future with God. One of the problems of giving um, network news access to our hearts and minds without knowledge of God is that it takes us to a place of despair. (laughs) And God doesn't want that for us. When we... um, When we are filled with wisdom and knowledge of God, that future shapes how we understand our future of our, a shared future with God, the glory of our future with God. That future shapes how we understand and respond to the present difficulties. And it allows us to face the ominous possibilities of this fallen world with a quiet confidence and a peace that passes all understanding. One of the things I think that's really important here is when it talks, when Paul prays for the church in Ephesus, that they would grow in the knowledge of God, that they'd be granted to know God more. We have to stop here and mention the really critical importance of being in our Bibles during this time. Uh, very important for God's people to be spending time in God's Word and to give Him access to our hearts and minds. Again, I've used this analogy in the past, but your heart and mind are like a garden, and weeds are constantly growing in that garden. And God's Word is like a hoe that you take and you chop up those weeds. And if you don't do that regularly, the weeds of error and bitterness and all kinds of bad thinking are going to take over the whole place and choke out the good things. And so especially during a season like this where we're consuming so much information, it's really important to consume that information in a way that's uh, checked by knowledge of God. We move on. Uh, In verses 18, the middle of verse 18 through verse 19, it says this. After talking about his prayer that they would be able to see and discern things spiritually. They'd have wisdom and revelation of God, knowledge of God. Their hearts have been enlightened to see and discern spiritual truths. He then goes to, on to say this, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Uh, this week, I, I made it my habit to, as I was praying for you, for you all, to pray this prayer. And as I was praying this prayer over you, again, some of you by name, this portion of the prayer in which Paul prays that his friends would know three things, the hope of their calling, the riches of their inheritance in Christ, and the power of God that's available to us in Christ This was a very poignant thing this week to ask God to give you. Because in this present season, instead of hope, many are being tempted to feel despair. And lots of folks are worried about the economy, their business, or their own personal finances. Maybe they're out of work. And here Paul prays that his friends would know the riches of their glorious inheritance in the saints. And it also seems to me that many people feel powerless right now. 
like they're being acted upon by external forces that are beyond their control. We're all so much flotsam and jetsam in the waves here and, and uh, we just feel like we're being acted upon and we're not able to be in control the way we'd like to. We're powerless. And there's a phrase that I keep saying in particular in my conversations when I'm talking to people about this pandemic that I think the Holy Spirit brought to my attention this past week. I actually became annoyed at how often I was saying it. Maybe if you were one of the ones talking to me, <laughs> you, you also may have been annoyed by me. I don't know. Uh, but sometimes after I complain about this or that, I have this tendency to say, you know, but what are you going to do? And what that means is that I feel powerless. What are you going to do? You can't get this thing at the store. Uh, I can't go and see this person. I can't do this. I can't do that. But, you know, what are you going to do? It's an expression of powerlessness. But here God talks about power, hope, riches, and power. Those are things in short supply these days. Maybe they were among the Ephesians as well. But Paul prays that they would know those things. That word know in verse 18 in my Bible, I circled that and drew an arrow over to the word knowledge in verse 17. In knowing, the knowing of our hope, the hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance, and the power available to us that was worked in the raising of Jesus from the dead are linked directly to the knowledge of God. To know God is to know those other things. And as we grow in the knowledge of God, of the promises He's made to us, of the way He loves to demonstrate His power towards those who have put their trust in Him, that He owns cattle on a thousand hills, our hearts and minds find a peace that passes the understanding of our unbelieving friends. There is a hope found in the knowledge of God that allows us to face whatever this fallen world may throw at us, even death, with, again, a quiet confidence, because His will cannot be thwarted, and He is working all things for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. There is also, I think, a present inheritance in the saints. Uh, for grace, I, one of my commentaries this week used the expression, and I kind of liked it. It said, for grace is glory begun, and uh, it's the flower in the bud. One day we will enter into the fullness of our reward in Christ. But even now we look to God in trust as our great provider, shepherd God. This is the same God who says in Isaiah 41, verses 17 through 18, when the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and like in the dry land, springs of water. Brothers and sisters, you belong to a great shepherd God. And in this season, when we grow in our knowledge of God, we learn that we should not question his abilities as a shepherd. He knows what he is doing. We are in his hand, and we are in good hands. And lastly, there is tremendous power available to us through the Holy Spirit. A.C. Dixon once wrote, When we rely upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do, and so on. 
But when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do. And that's an amazing thing that the church has to tap into. John R. Mott, he makes this statement. He says, It is possible for the most obscure person in a church, with a heart right toward God, to exercise as much power for the evangelization of the world as it is for those who stand in the most prominent positions. And so I would just encourage you this week, as you feel powerless, as you feel like you're just being acted upon by circumstances far beyond your control, to turn that, weaponize that feeling into prayers to God, a God who is powerful, who is able, who loves to prove himself to his people and on behalf of his people. We have a great, tremendous power that is at our disposal as God's people, the church. And then we move on to verses 20 through 23. It says, speaking of following up on the idea of power, that's the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As I was thinking about these last verses of this prayer, it occurred to me that this is really a list of Jesus' defeated enemies. The grave the powers in the unseen realm, the mention of the fallen world being put under his feet. That's a comprehensive statement. The language is striking because although it says that he is above the powers of the unseen realm and that all things are under his feet and that he's no longer in the grave, it says of the church that he fills us and that we are his very body. We are not somewhere in relation to him. He is not above us. We're not under his feet. We are with him and he is in us. We are in him. The language is striking because whereas Satan and death are brought low to a humbling place, we are described as having, being, as having been lifted up and exalted with Christ. And in fact, we are united to him. Power is only comforting if it is exerted on one's behalf. I was thinking about this. Just imagine yourself if you were a hiker in the mountains and you were hiking up a trail and all of a sudden a huge thunderstorm came crashing down. There was lightning and thunder and sheets of rain and you were afraid you were going to get hit by lightning and killed on the side of the mountain. And so just then as you were afraid for your life, you saw on the side of the mountain a cave. So you ducked inside the cave and you're inside um, and you, you, you start to smell something. And you get your flashlight, and you flash the light into the back of the cave, and there is a mother bear with her little cub. <laughs> and the smell of that mother bear is filling the cave. Now, the power of that mother bear is not comforting to you because you're a trespasser in their cave. In fact, it's horrifying. But that smell of the mama, mama bear that fills the cave that is so terrifying and horrible and objectionable to you is the very aroma of comfort and protection to that little cub. 
You see, power is only comforting if it is exerted on one's behalf. 2 Corinthians 15, 16 makes much the same argument. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. It's the same smell, but there's two wildly different emotional reactions to the aroma of Christ. And so when we read these last verses about how all things have been made, put under Jesus' feet, and his name is above every power in the unseen realm, and he's defeated the grave, for us who are the very children of God, That is such a wonderfully comforting expression of the power of God that is available to us. That all these things that we're facing, pandemics and horrifying, ominous possibilities in the news, all these things are defeated enemies. We're fighting a bunch of ghosts. Their days are numbered, but our days are eternal. The coronavirus is a defeated enemy. Jesus has already won, and we are with Jesus. We are his body. And what Paul challenges the Ephesian believers to do in this prayer, really what he asks God to give the Ephesian believers as a gift, is to see not their circumstances, not with their natural eyes, but to look on them in a supernatural way that informs them and fills their hearts and minds with the hope of their calling not despair at the world around, that fills them with the knowledge of their rich and glorious inheritance in the saints, not their present poverty, and that fills their minds with the uh, amazing uh, horizon-shifting knowledge of the great and awesome power of God that is at work in the church and in you as a believer right now, not the feeling of helplessness, that you're just a pawn in all these great global events. You're just being acted upon. That's not true. You are attached. You're you're part of the very body of Christ. And when we pray, we are just tapping into that awesome, true power that has already won. And so my closing challenge to you this morning, this week, is to be in God's Word I I pray uh, for you now and and throughout this week, throughout this past week, as I was thinking about you and praying for you, that as you turn to God and His Word, that God would meet you there in a wonderful way, that you would grow in your knowledge of God in a way that would help shape the way you look on your present in light of the great and glorious future that you have with this awesome, excellent God that we belong to. And I would encourage you to follow Paul's example also. I challenge you to commit to praying for someone this week. Maybe a couple of people. Make it your habit every day to get into God's word and pray what you see there over your brothers and sisters. Let me now close by praying for you, State Road, and uh, let's do that. Dear Heavenly Father, This past week, as I talked to my brothers and sisters, I found myself so often filled with joy in your presence. 
filled with joy in your presence as I heard the evidence of their faith and the way that that faith is finding meaningful expression in all the many ways that they are showing their love to one another. Father, I pray that as they seek you in your word this week, that you would meet them there in wonderful ways, unexpected ways. God, I pray that the light bulbs would go off, that they would see things there and enjoy you in the midst of your word. And Father, I pray that you would do this by the Holy Spirit, who has opened the eyes of our hearts to allow us to see and discern spiritual truths. Father, I pray that my friends at State Road would know what is the hope to which you have called them, the riches of their glorious inheritance in the saints. Father, I pray that they would know the immeasurable greatness of your power towards those who believe. Father, you are proven to us in power and in love. For you did not abandon Jesus to the grave, And you will not abandon those who have put their trust in Jesus to the grave either. You raised Jesus from the dead. You seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And Father, one day you have also promised that you will likewise raise us. And seat us with Jesus in the heavenly realms. Father, fill our hearts and our minds with these things this week. Whatever the years ahead hold, we are your people. And we look to you in trust. We are so glad to be yours. In Jesus' name, amen.